Hello, I'm Keith Ruckhaus. I'm Alec Tsukatos. And together we're doing another one of our sessions on the boulder bolding. And uh, we're going to continue our topic today of uh, income inequality. Is that correct, Alec? Income and wealth inequality and its relationship to well-being, okay. both human well-being and the Earth's well-being. Great. So we're going to actually continue that whole discussion we had last time about indexes and ways to measure a healthy economy. To begin with, I would want to read a little excerpt I found off of the website that you mentioned last time, steadystate.org, which has a lot of information on steady state economics. This one is a little newsletter with a kind of a cute little title called The Daily News, D-A-L-Y, after Herman Daly. This is written by Donnie McClurkin and Jen Hinton, who has written a book entitled How on Earth Flourishing in a Nonprofit World by 2050. I just want to read a little excerpt that was written in 2013. I believe this is right after Occupy Wall Street. Oh, yes. Imagining a different kind of economy and how we as individuals might be living in it. So Mm -hmm. let me read it. Imagine waking up in a world where you feel good about going to work, no matter the nature of your job. You feel positive and motivated, knowing that your work provides you with a livelihood that also contributes to the well-being of others in a way that respects the ecological limits of the planet. Welcome to not-for-profit world, where businesses can still make profits, but any profits are always reinvested for social and organizational benefit, rather than being accumulated privately by individuals. This world emerged because around 2013, a large number of people came to the realization that any economic system that centralizes wealth and power is, ultimately, socially and ecologically unsustainable. People were fed up with excessive executive salaries, a financial sector divorced from the real world, corporations with more say than people, endless spin for politicians and entrepreneurs about the latest technological solution, and the trapping of mindless consumption. As the mainstream attention on the Occupy movement faded, protesters even started to question whether being fed up was worthwhile. Then a real alternative emerged. The people already had a business structure that wasn't centered on creating private profit and concentrating wealth and power. All they had to do was grow the not-for-profit sector, shifting power away from the for-profits. A not-for-profit economy changed the game by decentralizing wealth and power while maintaining incentives for innovation and increasing people's desire for meaningful work. Before 2013, when for-profit enterprises was the main business model, it was contributing to financial inequity and vested interests. This had led to an increase of status anxiety due to drastic differences in material wealth. The majority of people often felt that because they didn't have as many material possessions as the wealthy classes, among whom the money had been concentrated, they couldn't be happy. For some people in the lowest income brackets, this inequality not only meant status anxiety and shame, but even a lack of consumption 
Choices Affecting Diet and Health. For many, the solution was to consume more of whatever they could afford. On the global level, this overconsumption went hand in hand with production practices that exploited workers in sweatshops to make cheap and plentiful products while decimating key natural resources. This clearly was unsustainable. As more and more people realized that all forms of capitalism and socialism grounded in a growth mentality, centralized wealth and power and are therefore unsustainable. They also began to see how a not-for-profit economy offered a way to decentralize power while maintaining innovation. When a critical mass of people reached this realization and accelerated the shift to the not-for-profit business model, everything started to change for the better. Well, Alec, that was just one example of imagining into a better and brighter future. Again, a lot of people are saying, oh, that's uh, utopic, that will never happen. The inclination of people's hearts is evil always or something biblical like that. And yet you coined the phrase, which is on my website, practical idealism, that yes, of course we can envision and hope for and encourage better ways of living as long as those accompany real actions that can take place in our world, right? Yes, and also a metric that will allow us to see whether or not we've accomplished what we set out to accomplish, because you can have marvelous ideas that turn out not to be practical, not to actually work like you uh, imagined them to, to be. Otherwise, we are beset by fear that we are, cannot change because we are afraid of change and that if we do have change, it'll be worse than what we have already. Right. So you were talking about measuring things, and that's what economists are good at and have come up with. As we talked about last time, GDP at one point was a good measure coming out of the Depression and World War II of measuring productiveness of a society and that it had its function in its time. Yeah, in, in this sense, that the principal problem of the 30s was unemployment and the reduction of the, uh, of the economy. Yes, we were not really producing as much for a whole variety of reasons. So the thing to do is to start increasing economic activity. And so GDP, gross domestic product, measures economic activity. And that was very closely associated with also reduction of unemployment and therefore human well-being. So human well-being and the production of more output was very, very closely related. So it's understandable that we use GDP not only as a measure of economic activity, but also of human well-being. So we're continuing our conversation of inequality of income and wealth, and I understand you're going to talk more about how to measure that in a steady state economics rather than in a constant growth 
models. So take it away. The challenge that we face, not only in the United States, but as human beings, is on the one hand, how to attend to people's well-being in the sense of providing for things that they want and need, while at the same time seeing to it that we don't destroy the environment. Or each other. And and or <laughs> each other, yes, that's right. That, I think, is very closely related to this issue of the Green New Deal that people are talking about. The New Deal part of it has to do with inequality of income and wealth. That is to say, the output that we produce is uh, not widely dispersed so that everybody can have a good life, but is concentrated increasingly in the hands of the very, very rich and also very powerful. And that's not sustainable on that level. Plus, we have the additional problem that FDR did not have in the 1930s, and that is the issue of doing, attending to the issue of uh, economic justice without destroying uh, the earth. Okay. So that's why we need an index of well-being. How do we know that we've achieved widespread well-being? And there are various indices that have been developed to counter the dependency on GDP alone. That has not really very much entered into the teaching of economics in undergraduate and graduate work in virtually all departments of economics, not only in the United States, but all over the world. But the, the pressure is there to do just that. And there are various such indices with a, uh, with a variety of how dependent they are to be measuring well-being. So that's uh, one topic, finding what is an adequate or good indice index, and it might be that we will depend on two or three, because they can all be good and not be altogether good as one index. Right, and there are several out at this point. Yes, there are, Uh there are. The other topic, it seems to me, is the issue of why we should change the distribution of income and wealth. What is it that the present one, what's wrong with the present one? Okay, so if you're wealthy, you don't have much problem with (laughs) our present system, right? Well, not necessarily. (laughs) I would say, actually, that there is some evidence that um, wealth beyond a certain level and power beyond a, a certain level becomes an addiction, just like with any thing in this world. You know, you can have food, you can have water, because they're life uh, engendering, as it were, and you can have too much. Let's say the notion of moderation is a really terribly important one, and more is not necessarily better. So even the well-to-do and the very powerful can gain from being relieved of this addiction to have more than what one already has. Similar to uh, Frederick Douglass Douglass. talking about 
slaves and slaveholders that he brought out that slavery is not only good, not good for slaves, it's not good for slaveholders as yeah, well. Yes, which I find a remarkable, remarkable insight, having himself been a slave, to be able to to connect with the pain that it produces in in his oppressor. Right. So, so what indexes do you have in mind? Well, I don't have any any of the names in mind, but there are there and it's very easy to to find. A topic that is related to that and that is what's so bad about the distribution of income and wealth today? Who does it damage? And the evidence, in my estimation, is overwhelming. And the principal resource that I have for that is a book called titled The Spirit Level. It's written by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Piquette, two um, uh, Brits that are epidemiologists. Okay, we talked about that last time. And that uh, uh, a number of social ills come as a result of, uh, of that. So that's one is that there are damages uh, that are created in in the world uh, as a result of very high uh, inequality. The other one is, even though there might be some bad things that happen as a result of inequality, there are also good things that happen by extreme inequality, or so the claim is. Okay. My own sense is that there is very little to that claim. In other words, that if we reduce the inequality considerably, not only we will not lose anything, we will gain. So even from an economist's point of view, the benefits are much greater than the costs of reducing it. Okay. Now, there is uh, one other element that is uh, used by in favor of the inequality of income and wealth, and that is that people have earned it. And that is a very, very strong value in uh, democracies in general, namely that you uh, ought to keep or the society ought to protect your right to keep what you've earned. This is very, very much opposed to the notion of in feudalism where you get money and power because of your inheritance, not because of your own work and your own earnings. So that brings us to, and that's a virtue, really, of, uh, of capitalism, that uh, they made that transition. Right. The question then becomes, well, do the extraordinary rich, have, did they earn that money? And that's where the argument goes these days, is by all means, let's give people what they've earned and protect that. Okay. But on the other hand, to find out whether indeed they have earned it. Okay. And take, for instance, if you got lucky and you happen to be now in charge of a monopoly. Yes. And your, your income is mainly rent from your monopoly, is that really earned 
that's income, right. and especially by, because you got lucky. Yeah, and by definition, either lucky or you produce that monopoly. Yeah. Or well, you it's produce it, a combination. Yeah, of yeah that's two. right. Yeah. Or you produce it themselves by sometimes legal and sometimes not so legal means of producing that monopoly. But one way or the other, Adam Smith, for example, who was very much in favor of the market system, essentially specified very clearly that the market system that he's in favor of is an extremely competitive one, and monopoly is the opposite of a competitive yeah. uh, system. Which so we that, doesn't get mentioned too much anymore these yes, days. Yes, that's we, right. So he is very much that way. There's no question about that with respect to his position. Another argument for inequality is incentive. If you somehow put the kibosh on innovation and entrepreneurialism, yes. the wealthy won't be incentivized to yes. gain wealth. that's true. So that's why I'm in favor of three kinds of taxes to tax wealth that does not interfere with the incentive. Okay. And those are a wealth tax, a land value tax that is was suggested by uh, an American economist and journalist by the name of Henry George in the uh, latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, and a tax on speculation. So that those are taxes that do not interfere with, with incentives. So, for example, let's take the wealth tax. Let's say you have a wealth that is calculated at $100 billion, and you tax 1% a year. So $1 billion goes into the government coffer. Will that induce the person that owns that to say, I'm not going to work anymore, or I'm not going to invent anymore, or I'm not going to provide money for uh, philanthropy? Absolutely not. It's inconceivable that you know people will behave that way. And if they do behave that way, we might as well uh, you know, still do it because you know they're not people that are worth taking seriously. Mm-hmm. The second one is a tax on uh, the value of the land. And what Henry George suggested with this tax was that it would actually be a substitute for taxing income of people, labor, let's say, or taxing income from capital, both of which actually do diminish the incentive to produce more capital and to work more intelligently, etc. So that in and of itself would be a tax that would be recommended for supporting incentives (laughs) rather than doing away with it. Right. For any listeners that are still skeptical about what we're talking about, I always like to say, especially when it comes to land taxes, well, imagine if you paid no income tax on your labor. Yeah. Yes. Imagine that. Right. And then most people would say, oh, that would be no, rather nice. <laughs> That's right. And or or uh, uh, your savings that you put into capital investment for an invention and, and you know, where you make money from and you hire other people to work with you and for you, etc. Right. And the last one is the tax on uh, speculation. 
It can be a speculation on domestic things, like you buy a piece of property, you then sell it six months later for double the price. You haven't contributed anything to the economy. In other words, you haven't earned it. Even though it's, of course, legal to do that, it is not something that you've earned. Right, right. The same thing is speculating with currencies. You know, you buy some uh, Japanese yen, you wait until the value of the Japanese yen increases, you sell them. Again, you haven't contributed anything of value. As a matter of fact, you might have contributed to instability. As right. a, yeah. So why on earth should we be allowing these kinds of incomes to be to be gained, they have not been earned. Right. So all of those are arguments in, in favor of taxing without diminishing incentives to, to do work or to produce it's, new products. Essentially, all these are taxes on parasitical activities of the economy that diminish yes. economic activity. They don't... Yes increase economic activity. Yes, and they are therefore unjust because it goes against the notion that you ought to keep what you have earned in the sense that you've contributed. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you contribute things of value but cannot be measured by money. So, for example, you might be a very great philosopher or you might be a great poet. You know, by and large... They're, they're not people who are known for becoming rich, for contributing this extraordinary value. Right. Only certain contributions are determined by the market to have value, even though other ones are very much better or equal, at least. Or probably the more immediate example is parenting, which you don't get paid for. I mean, yes. we do have some, some kinds of tax help, but that's a lot of times looked at as charity yes, rather than a non-marketable value for society. Yes, that's right. And I, I want to, since you brought it up, then talk about the distinction between charity and social justice. Now, the way I want to talk about it is to bring in this distinction that I have found very useful to me that was brought out by a book uh, written by a theologian. And that is uh, the difference between individual sin and structural sin. Individual sin has to do with me doing some harm uh, individually to you or anybody or the environment for that matter Mm -hmm. that will damage people and the environment in the future. All right, or immediately. Right. So that's really the one, by and large, that virtually all churches pay a great deal of attention to. Correct. The second part is harm that is produced as a result of the structure in a particular society. Which we all participate in, even when we feel like I'm not myself individually contributing to in, an evil. But right. my participation in a large system contributes to a an evil. That's right. Uh, a harm that is produced in society. So, for example, I drove here uh, to your house this morning 
with my car. As a result of that, I put a lot of pollutants into people's lungs, and they will suffer for them, even though they uh, didn't get compensation for that suffering. Right. Yeah. But my intention was not to do that. Right. Nevertheless, I am responsible as a citizen of a community, of a society, to see to it that if I recognize that there are structures that damage people independently of the will of individuals, I'm partially responsible for seeing to it that that structure is changed so that that harm is either diminished or done away with. Correct. Here's Here's how I relate it now to philanthropy or charity on the one hand and social justice. Social justice has to do with systemic evil, whereas philanthropy has to do with individual sort of attempts at doing away with individual or societal evil. And so philanthropy will never be sufficient to solve problems that are due to uh, systemic evil or systemic sin. And so therefore, it is our responsibility not to do away with philanthropy, but also on the other hand, to attempt to change the system so that it is more just. Correct. And here's where we always miss out on the second half of the formula when we look at Bill Gates or George Soros or any, yes. any, any Michael any. Bloomberg who, do, who pours a lot of money into uh, philanthropic and Endeavors, endeavors yeah. that are good and they help people immediately. The problem is we never ask the question, how did you end up with ridiculous amounts of money in the first place? Yes. And the other aspect of that is, does this mean that because you have all this wealth, then you alone get to be the one to determine What's worthy of being addressed and what's not worthy of being addressed. Quite so. Quite so. And I think that there is another element uh, with respect to philanthropy, and that's with with, uh, the issue of uh, being used to assuage guilt. You can use your money uh, in order to say, well, I did this bad thing, but on the other hand, I did this good thing. And that's really very dangerous, uh, it seems to me, in the long run for people. There's nothing wrong with attempting to correct past it, mistakes. It creates but, uh, whataboutism. Uh, yes. Well, you you polluted half half the state's water. Well, what about that so-and-so provided uh, schools, School, yeah. you know, or... Funds for schools. Funds for schools, yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Well, as we look to wrap up this session, Alec, you wanted to return to that initial reading I had from the Daily News, yeah. imagining a different kind of economic world yes, to function in. That's right. And that economic world is not based on the primacy of profit, the primacy of profit. It doesn't mean that profit is bad. It means that if it's the only indicator that we use for judging how good a society is. What that reading uh, recommends is that we 
put profit at a different order. That is to say, is it, it must be a servant of the common good rather than the director or the primary uh, right. goal, if right. you will. That's the idea. The same thing goes with respect to the market. The market is one, or the market system rather, is one of the greatest inventions of the human mind, in my estimation, a social invention. But it must be an instrument, not a goal in and of itself, not a god or a goddess in and right. of itself. Right. It's not about jettisoning profit or jettisoning the market system. It's in putting it in the right order. And that right order is the, the, common, the good. common good. And I would uh, the only thing that I would alter in that uh, original piece is not to use not for profit, but to use for the common good. People, I think, are more attracted with what are you in favor of rather than what are you against. Okay. That, I think, is a very, very basic idea. And I would like to finish with an essay that was written by John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, in 1930, where he put aside the problems uh, of the Great Depression and, uh, you know, the immediate short-term problems that he contributed a great deal to solving in the direction of the possibilities for our grandchildren a hundred years hence. What will the world look like if we are wise and just? The work week would be maybe 15 hours a week for everybody, and we would not really be so lusting after making a living and uh, being uh, superior to other people, etc. And we would spend our, our time having discussions over, over a drink or over coffee and producing wonderful things for the world and for, uh, for the earth. It turned out that because of bad decision, uh, uh, including wars, we, uh, we are far away from his uh, dreams. So the people who wrote the essay suggested that their horizon is over 2050. I think that uh, that's not a good idea. That's the only other second thing that I would talk about, is the urgency of solving these problems is, uh, you know, 10 years, 20 years at the maximum, not 30 years from now. If we give ourselves 30 years to solve these problems, these problems will not be solved. Right. That's my sense. And hence, that's a whole other topic about political will. Yes. That we'll get to at some point. I'm yes. probably towards the end of our series we're going to have to talk about because there's a lot of minds out there, especially in America, that really don't want to see things in any other way than... Yeah, uh, and that, that of course, is the issue of uh, these issues and their, their relationship to the democratic ideal. What kind of democracy? What do we mean by democracy? Has the correct. meaning of democracy changed? Right. Uh, and exactly. should we really spend a lot of human capital in terms of ideas and in terms of action to attend to that issue, which we've allowed dormant as if 
uh, we took it for granted right. that democracy, because of the founding fathers, would always uh, be there somehow, and that the United States would always be a beacon uh, for that kind of uh, governing ourselves. Right. And it seems as if that has been quite illusionary, as right. we're discovering today. Okay, so what do we think we're going to address in our ne- next session? Do you have anything in mind? Well, we can address, um, uh, you know, one final piece on uh, distribution of income and wealth and its relation to well-being as to what are suggestions that have been made as to how to to go about doing this. Okay. We've suggested objections to changing it, okay. some solutions with respect to taxation, but I think that there is one major topic that I'd like to attend to, which is this idea that we've got to keep inequality from happening rather than have policies to deal with inequality once it's happened. In other words, pre-distribution versus post-distribution or okay. you know, changing the distribution after the fact. It's just that the analogy is much, much better to keep an illness from happening rather than treating it afterwards. Correct. Treat the malady, not the symptom. Yes. Yep. All right. We're going to wrap this up for today. I want to remind that you can get resources. Alec mentioned books uh, in this session. We have a bibliography uh, listed on our website, found at www.amosephraim.com. And look for the menu of the Boulder Bolding. And we have all of our broadcasts on there, as well as resources that you can, and links that you can go to to explore this more yourself. So we're going to wrap this up for another time, and we'll see you next time.